welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Ayers. Joining me to count down the top 10 greatest Huey Lewis and the News albums and dive deep into the twisted mind of Patrick Bateman, American Psycho, our senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Julian Sanchez. Landry, hey, let's get lunch. And associate editor at Reason, Liz Wolf. Hey, thanks for having me. So glad to have you both here, especially to talk about a film that is as kind of complex and odd as American Psycho, uh, specifically when you think about where it came from as a novel by Brett Easton Ellis and then what it became as a film and really what it's become after that in its legacy in internet culture. So the book itself was really called out as being highly misogynistic and hyper-violent and there were calls for boycotts of it from all of these people and it was – and it is – it's a very graphic book in and of itself. I, I don't think you can deny that. Uh, it's even said that apparently when they were making the movie and there was talk of Leonardo DiCaprio getting to uh, to be cast as Patrick Bateman that Gloria Steinem herself had to kind of help convince him – that it would ruin his image with his younger female fans and tried to convince him not to take it. Uh, but eventually they they land on Christian Bale. And it's really interesting because both the script was written and adapted and it was directed by women as well. And it really takes on a new form in the visual medium and becomes, I think, a lot more about a pointed depiction of masculinity at a certain point in time. Is this movie a, a feminist film in that way? Yes or no? And why? What's your take on that? I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to is not the degree to which it is or is not a feminist film, because to some degree, I like the restraint that the director exercised in terms of understanding which pieces to excise from the book and use and how to use them in a way that is still a, a decent and pleasant-ish viewing experience. I think had she had more fidelity to the book, it would have been, you know, terribly graphic, terribly uh, uncomfortable to watch. There would have been, it would have sort of seeped into the obvious explicit horror category and you might have lost some of the satirical elements. So I appreciate the restraint to some degree. But the thing I keep coming back to is how interesting it is to consider this sort of like metrosexual, uh, like ultra like vain dude, dudescaping, manscaping type uh, attitude. Because one of the things that I think people sometimes talk about nowadays is you know, it's they sort of pretend we're in a new, fresh wave of like TikTokified dude hair, dudes caring a lot about their personal care and hygiene routines. Uh, men are being more freely vain. But we did have this whole wave in the 80s. So this isn't exactly a thing that's limited to 2022 or 2021 or something that happened with the advent of social media. This is something that really existed 40-ish years ago. And so I really like the degree to which American Psycho brings you back to that time and reminds a modern day viewer that this is not a new or recent phenomenon. Uh, so I'd say, uh, well, I'll just second that. Uh, I, I reread the book for the first time in probably 20 years uh, uh, in preparation for the podcast. And I had, uh, I guess maybe blotted out, um, right. The, the movie, you know, kind of keeps itself firmly sort of in the realm of black comedy by keeping most of Bateman's, um, actual killing sort of off screen. You see the blood splash on his face or the, um, you know, from a distance, a body with a, a chainsaw in it. Um, but it manages to sort of still play, for the most part, darkly funny. Um, the book has these really lengthy, nauseating descriptions of, of just graphic sexual violence um, that just, you know, drag on past the point anyone, you know, could conceivably find it funny that, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be extremely worried about, um, so psychologically, um, it's, it's, yeah, I don't think it could have been filmed or released, um, if they'd actually included that it's, uh, um, it makes, it makes, uh, the human centipede look like a Disney film, um, or, or would have, if they'd filmed that. Um, but yeah, to, to Liz's point, um, I think one of the interesting things, again, this movie comes a little bit more in the book is, um, you know, I mean, the book, you really are a third of the way through before you actually get scenes where Bateman is like, actually killing anyone. Um, there are kind of increasing references to maybe he's got these 
impulses. Um, but for a very long you know, stretch of it, it is um, it is him kind of tediously, meticulously describing every article of clothing that everyone's wearing and every appliance and all the, you know, exactly what brand of moisturizer he uses and where the tie is from and where the pocket square is from. And, um, you know, this is coupled with, again, a little more in the book, right? Um, Bateman's and his whole social circle's incredibly intense homophobia. Um, you get a little bit of this in the movie. Um, they use the F, not not that F word, the, the homophobic slur F word, um, uh, a fair amount. You crept a lot more in the book along with racial slurs. And, um, you know, there's an interesting tension there, right? You've got this, this sort of stereotypically, um, you know, kind of 80s stereotypically gay, right? Kind of um, hyper interest in, um, right, sort of sartorial concerns and the fine points of, of dressing elegantly and correctly and, and uh, working out. And, um, you know, you get this in the film, right? Kind of... Um, Bateman's sort of narcissistic obsession with his own sort of Adonis-like physical perfection. Um, and then almost maybe as a kind of a reaction to that, to that um, right, really intense homophobia. Um, you get this in the film a little bit. He reacts with right, obvious kind of horror um, when Lewis Carruthers sort of mistakes his, you know, incipient strangling as a sexual overture and uh, obviously Bateman is kind of disgusted and revolts against that. Um, that gets stretched out a lot more in the book. Um, uh, uh, the, the, um, and there's a weird tension there because, um, or it's, it's, he's doing something with that. Um, because of course, right. He's overtly reacting in this kind of revolted, um, and, and hostile way. Um, but right. Carruthers doesn't actually get killed in the book as I recall. Right. Uh, he, he, um, in fact, it's, I mean, I think it's, it's the fact that violence is eroticized for Bateman, right? The fact that, that again, much more clearly in the book that he is right, sexually aroused by, by the violence he inflicts, um, right? Creates this situation where, right, he, he backs off uh, an attempt to kill Carruthers um, precisely because I think he's anxious about, um, right, recognizing what it might mean for him to, to, um, to experience, right, sort of the arousal of that murder um, in a context where, in some sense, right, the victim is is a man who is attracted to him. Um, so that's that's something that's I, I just you know it's a it's a ninety minute movie, so there's just a lot of that that doesn't that doesn't make it in in the same level of detail. So this is, I think, actually a huge weakness of the movie: the fact that the connection between the the eroticism he feels from violence, I don't get that in the movie to nearly the degree that I would have expected. Do you guys get that? Like to, to, to some degree, the thing that keeps that they do a really good job underscoring and, and highlighting is that uh, he is so that Bateman is so detached from getting any sort of sexual gratification from women. You know, he obviously sees them as objects. Uh, he has porn on in the background while he's doing like routine chores and errands and stuff like that. Um, you know, making a dinner reservation. There's just like porn playing the way that like I would maybe put on like a cooking show or something like that or a beauty tutorial, you know, but for him, it's porn. But I don't get the connection in the movie between eroticism and violence as it's sort of in portrayed in Bateman's mind. Do you get that in the movie? I I really don't. I'm not sure where it gets. And I to me, what's interesting is he talks about these compulsions that are constantly sort of, you know, creating this inhuman need for him to enact violence on all of these people. And you sort of get the idea that and, – and he says like I've confessed to killing like 20 people and you know this might have happened before and he's had these compulsions for a long time. But only recently are the – is he – you know, are they being forced out into his real life? Um, but you kind of get the idea that he's you know well-planned enough that he's probably enacted this type of thing before. But the release he does get from it becomes – less and less over time but i don't know if that comes from the act itself you know not functioning in the same way or if it's that he gets sloppy in the way that he does it and he gets closer and closer to getting caught doing it by someone like willem defoe's character and that is he comes to this you know 
fear-fueled confession when he finally calls his lawyer on the phone after he's gone on this crazy killing spree out of nowhere and he begins to like you know break down emotionally and it's you know one of the the few times in the film beyond just rage that we're getting a lot of emoting from uh from this character and you wonder for a brief moment where this is coming from and what it's going to, and then you realize that it's it's simply a fear of getting caught, not a fear of being inhuman and realizing any sort of thing about himself. He doesn't undergo like a, a significant uh, internal change at that moment. There's no like – There is no catharsis. Sort of, there's nothing to Exactly. There's no the catharsis telling. there. It's only I'm about to get caught – and the guilt says, like, that is where it comes from. So the sort of lack of any type of gratification from this, it's true. It's it's sort of complicated, but maybe that lends into the sort of dissatisfaction that he feels at the end of the film. I can't speak to the ending of the book, but maybe that disconnect where we assume there to be a gratification Really, the it being absent is trying to illustrate the meaninglessness of it all and the sort of flaw in what could be seen as delusions. Uh, but I think a lot of people take as uh, you know something he has actually enacted on these people. The, the, the movie, much more than the book, right, kind of leans into this idea of uh, of of ambiguity about how much of uh, this violence he's carried out is, you know, some kind of, of hallucinatory fantasy. Um, there's a little bit of that in the book, but it's less... Um, the way the movie is structured, right, all of the elements that that seem like, you know, we're, we're getting Bateman's unreliable narration, we're, we're seeing through his eyes, stuff that probably does not literally happen exactly as it's depicted, is sort of bunched together at the end. Um in a way that, you know, it's not that none of this happens in the book. It's that they are compressed as the final moments or the, you know, the final like 20 minutes um, in a way that much more strongly biased towards a sort of suggestion that, oh, maybe this is all in his head. Um, that's much less strongly suggested in in the book. In the book, I think the stronger implication is, um, that, well, yes, he's an unreliable narrator, but that... Um, that in a sense, right, the society around him is so uh, is so psychopathic that he is in fact kind of normal that that it will not allow him to be caught um, because well he's this wealthy, attractive, uh, you know, outwardly conforming, uh, you know, rich white guy, uh, and so even when he tries to openly confess, they sort of don't recognize him as uh, uh, as right as this monster that he is. Um, one of the interesting scenes that in the in the movie I think le- leans more into this again the ambiguity about whether he's really done it is he goes to visit the apartment um, where he's killed Paul Allen in the movie Owen in the book um, and and a couple of other uh, sex workers there um, at least we've we've seen on screen and everything is sort of cleaned up and repainted and there's a realtor showing the place um, and it's sort of a little bit tense. And it leans a little heavier in the movie into the potential interpretation that, like, this was never Paul's apartment, that none of that really happened. In the book, the the it, the clearer implication is this is a multi-million dollar condo, right, um, that needs to be resold. And so the people who own this and stand to make money off it are not about to report a bunch of gruesomely dismembered bodies um in this apartment so this has all been covered up because well look we got to re- you know we can't tank the property value of this of this luxury condo um and so in a sense right it's it's about the networks of protection around uh which is you know in its own way pretty timely right right the way um these sort of institutions of wealth and power act to protect um even people who are increasingly obviously and openly uh, depraved. Uh, you know, you could pick your favorite, pick your favorite example from the contemporary headlines. You see that from the the broker who's present in the movie scene where he goes back to Paul Allen's apartment 
And she sort of responds with this very vague, difficult to sort of discern and, and suss out not exactly a sense of suspicion, a sense of guardedness. She she sort of seems to be aware of the history of what happened in that apartment and knows that somebody who who is also aware of that is absolutely somebody that she wants to get as far away as possible from that uh, situation because it, it threatens, it jeopardizes her bottom line. It, it threatens the ability of the the people, the, the stakeholders to basically rehabilitate this apartment and get it sold again or rented again. And so I think that scene is really interesting because it's almost like I think that it lends some credence to the idea that these things actually did happen in reality and not just in Bateman's head because there's a sense of like acknowledgement from her. And I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of her guardedness, if not that. But one thing I also think about a lot uh, that really I, I hadn't considered it upon my my first or second watch of the movie, but the rewatch is the degree to which Bateman's like almost archival work is really impressive and bizarre. The degree to which he has these like drawings of the the woman that he slaughters and the brutal ways that he kills them. And he has these like very brutal depictions. He almost never focuses on the sexual side of things. There's definitely, um, you know, very graphic, detailed sketches of their bodies. But more than anything, it's focused on the weapon that's used. You know, it's not about the boobs. It's about the chainsaw. Uh, but then you also see, I mean, the degree to which he can sort of very easily in his confession rattle off all the different crimes he's committed. He almost keeps these things very front of mind. He's also doing the archival work of recording himself having sex with these people before he kills them and sometimes also recording the killings. So that's the thing that I really found fascinating upon rewatch, the degree to which he's almost obsessive because it, it all goes into this idea of like he cares so much about the image he's constructed of himself and there's such a strain of vanity throughout all of this but it's like these crimes would be less meaningful to him and less fulfilling to him to the extent that they even are fulfilling if they weren't so heavily documented and if he didn't have these means of of sort of like listing them out and compiling them and feeling some sense of accumulation and there's just an interesting detail present in how he documents this. You would almost think that a more savvy killer would be interested in covering their tracks, whereas he's almost interested in making it clear that, you know, he remembers every single little detail of each of these different encounters, uh, which I think is part of like that detail is what makes American Psycho different than other things that could perhaps be loosely fit into this genre. Right. It, it doesn't s seem like like if you saw this film and the killings absent of Patrick Bateman's life outside, you could kind of get the impression that he's a serial killer and he's collecting trophies. You know, it's like some people take, you know, fingers from their victims or, you know, it's Dexter Morgan's blood slides or whatever. He has the lock of hair in one of his that he's fiddling with right. at work. The bl blonde hair, always, always blonde. blonde. And, and you could see <laughs> that. It could just be like a trophy collection type of thing. But when that is placed in the context of Patrick Bateman and this sort of consumerist, yuppie satire, it becomes much more than I get a fulfillment from being reminded that I kill people. It is that fulfillment is derived from a, a, a list, a collection of things that are more associated with labels and esteem rather than just uh, a, a sort of collection of trinkets. It's much more of something that he is proud of rather than just feels a – like he talks about his compulsive needs, but the trophies he collects and the archiving, which I think is a really great way of putting it because it's so organized um, and is this sort of – record of the acts, it creates more of a story for him, which a lot of serial killers and in, in the sort of depictions that we get, they do sometimes get depicted as doing this for esteem. Uh, and, you know, they, they eventually confess and, you know, want people to know all of the people that they've done. But in the consumerist label a uh, sort of routine driven world of uh, American Psycho, he stands out and maybe it is more a, a sort of satire on that type of thing and equating it with the serial killer type collecting 
compulsion rather than comparing Patrick Bateman to the serial killer. It's sort of moving in the opposite direction and drawing our eyes in a in a new way. Oh, you see, I mean, you get a connection um, between his sort of status anxiety and and the murders uh, in in both the, the the book and the film. Um, right, he he first moves to kill Carruthers, um, though he doesn't actually do it. Um, when he realizes Carruthers has a much better business card than he does, and this right enrages him. Um, there's a murder that he confesses to in the film that we don't see on screen um, that we do get uh, at length in the book, where he kills. Um, an ex-girlfriend from Harvard, and it's right after she is she's come to his apartment. He's got this painting that he's uh, David and I, someone that uh, he's very proud of, um, uh, on the wall, and she realizes so he's hung it upside down, um, and she sort of giggles a little bit, and that's when he, you know, uh, hits her in the head with a nail gun. Um, so, so a lot of his uh, his violence in in both of them, right? seems to immediately follow some kind of right perceived humiliation or some some something that's sort of thrown his um his sense of status into question. Well the thing that I find really sort of baffling still is which women get targets on their backs versus which don't in Bateman world or in Bateman's mind because I think you could almost line them up to be a high status, low status thing where Evelyn and Courtney and these women who are in his milieu uh, don't aren't ever threatened in the same way that other women are. But then, you know, a prostitute that he finds on the street is somebody who who ends up uh, killed or, or he, you know, he's he's constantly sort of killing prostitutes. He sees a secretary as somebody that he can feasibly, plausibly um, do all this with but then the one thing that really does scramble this is elizabeth i think is her name the brunette acquaintance of his who sort of runs in his same circles who he has the threesome with um christy or christy the the prostitute and elizabeth and he kills elizabeth first and then is is you know angling to kill christy and she ends up almost successfully escaping but that's the thing that really scrambles it for me of like elizabeth would be the type of person who would be sort of seen in a cohort with evelyn and courtney and those types and so i sort of don't know what to make of that status pursuit in terms of his victims what do you guys think there i mean it does it does seem like there's a kind of escalation where um you know most of his targets are lower status um and right there's an element of kind of class humiliation um, that sort of precedes the physical sadism, um, where, um, I mean, he kind of goes out of his way to talk about where he worked and his fancy job, and he's you know asking the prostitute picked up on the street, oh, you know, where'd you go to college? You know, and and there's in the scene with um Elizabeth, she's saying, oh, where do you summer? Is it the Hamptons? And there's obviously a whole element of, you know, uh, obviously she you know didn't go to college, doesn't doesn't summer anywhere doesn't have a context she's right obviously so. a north fork girl right yes obviously <laughs> um but right he just, just seemed to escalate um over the course of it where um he is right gradually ascending to um right victims closer to his own socioeconomic status and class status um although in the actually in the book the first sort of indication of his tendencies is um that his fiance's neighbor has been decapitated um and he kind of offhandedly kind of essentially references oh yeah that you know i did that um and then kind of moves on and we it's actually quite a while before we get back to him being a murderer um but it is uh, uh, it's it's something in the in the book at least where you know, actually one of the first murders that we're kind of conscious of him having committed um, is someone who, you know, lives next door to his fiance and is presumably also uh, someone, right, wealthy enough to be living, to living next door to someone in that uh, in that income bracket. It's also really interesting, that, and I noticed this as I was watching, that there are several moments in the film, and I think they're almost exclusively when he's talking to women. I, I might be wrong about that, but I think it's the case where he in a normal conversation in a public place when he would normally be very guarded and trying to not describe his acts or anything like that, he will flat out 
tell people about his compulsions for violence and and what he does. Like they're at the nightclub one night and one of the women over all of the music asks what he does. And part of this is he's probably feels like he can get away with it because there's all the loud music playing and she can't really hear him. But she says, what do you do? And he says, I work in murders and executions. And she hears mergers and acquisitions and asks him if he likes it because all the people she knows that works in that hate it. Um, and there, it's this weird like she doesn't even – she's not phased by it. But then later on, he's on the phone with his secretary and he's trying to tell her what he's like all – I think he says either I'll kill you, he's you know, because she's questioning him, or she's like, he's like, I've killed a bunch of people. It it is a blatant confession, and she just goes, What's that? I can't hear you. Um, and then later on, when he's breaking up with Evelyn at the restaurant, he is describing his compulsions for he says, I have these homicidal tendencies that I cannot let go. And she is so in her own world that she's being broken up with that that sort of impact does not even phase her at all. And I was really kind of taken aback by that because he it, it, it's weird because he takes such like pride in the work, but is also so guarded about it with certain people. But perhaps it's that status anxiety in the way that he escalates and sort of differentiates his victims that he feels like there's some people that he can be honest with. And maybe it's perhaps because he doesn't feel threatened by those types of people and it's a way of sort of exerting his own power on them. And the most transgressive part of that scene, which I the one where he breaks up with Evelyn, is not even that he is sort of quietly admitting to some of these things while she ignores him. The most transgressive part is that he's using a crayon or a colored pencil to color on the table. And he's coloring, you know, stuff about his most recent execution. I think it might have been a chainsaw uh, situation. But it's not even the fact that there's a chainsaw there. It's the fact that he is coloring on the table at this presumably very high status restaurant. Like that's the thing that really should be most striking about the entire thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the one of the things that's, that that is conspicuous is sort of how little he seems to care about getting caught. And uh, I mean, that's in a sense, right? I think this is the the in a sense, the, the satirical point, right, which is um, he, he doesn't really have to hide it. Uh, he, you know, he gets, um, there's a great uh, scene that actually I don't think is in the book where he runs into Carruthers while he's dragging uh, a, you know, these sort of blood-soaked sleeping bag or, or garment bag with one of his victims in it and, like, loading it into the, the trunk of a car and Carruthers... Um, walks by and looks at what he's kind of dumping in the, in the bag. He's obviously a bag with a body in it. Um, and he says, Ooh, where'd you get that garment bag? And, you know, and, and he's uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier slams it and jumps into the car and goes off. So he's, he's kind of throughout just sort of increasingly open about, about what he's doing. And um, it's just sort of never, never believed or recognized. In a lot of ways, this is a kind of a magical realist, um, right, book and film in 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 that sense, in that you have, um, right, these sort of horrific, right, in one sense, fantastical, um, in the sense of just being wildly outside of kind of any kind of normal reality, um, but juxtaposed with these sort of incredibly mundane, you know, catalogs of brands and and details of of uh, of couture. Um, and right, no one sort of ever bats an eyelash, even as it just becomes right. Shut, you know, in, in, increasingly overt um, that that he's he's a psychopath, uh, and that's okay. He fits right in. Uh, so that's what he says uh, in both both book and film. Right? Why do you you know your your family is so rich? Why do you why do you even bother with this job? Um, well, you know, I just I want to fit in, and of course he does. Speaking of things that in the, you know, when this movie was released and in the world of it that people don't bat an eyelash at, they they kind of take for granted. But looking back on it now might jump out and mean a lot more uh, to us than when this film was made is the inclusion of uh, the uh, Donald Trump uh, idea in this in this movie and the idolatrous sort of worship of Trump that is even heavier in the book, but is still very, very present 
in the movie um, the sort of always looking at a different table and saying, is that Ivana? Is is that Donald? He, he, he changes an opinion about a restaurant because he hears that uh, it, Trump actually really, really likes it. And he his favorite book is Art of the Deal. Are Patrick Bateman types or people maybe that saw American Psycho like – I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, overstate this, but are they partially to blame for Trump 2016? You know, it, while the film might have not changed it so much, is there this sort of collective idea of what Trump was at that time that has morphed and changed and became The Apprentice and then the man who ran and won the presidency? And how did we get from American Psycho Donald Trump to the American psycho Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is interesting because it's because it's clearly right, in a sense right pre political, right? So this is a book that comes out in ninety one or ninety two, uh, the film that comes out in two thousand. When Donald Trump is a liberal Democrat, um, so right, it's not like oh he's being held up as a as a uh, a bad guy because like liberal Hollywood doesn't like a conservative Republican. Um, but nevertheless, um, so that's that's not what you know what's motivating this. And yet, you know, when you want to show that someone is a soulless uh, uh, a sociopath uh, with no with no redeeming qualities, how do you show? Well, you show that his his personal hero and role model is Donald Trump. Um, so even with right kind of the political uh, the, uh, the political valence is sort of inverted. Um, you know, the understanding for Ellis and his readers, and I guess the viewer of the film, is supposed to be. Um, well, my gosh, you know, you would have to be a really depraved person for for Donald Trump to be your um, to to be your personal hero, um, which is right. One of those interesting things about about his kind of political ascendancy is that in like his own milieu, um, New York and uh, folks who are interested in things happening in New York, um, right? Trump was sort of regarded with this 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 degree of kind of horror and contempt. Long before uh, he right had any kind of political uh, identity that was you know beyond being a friend of the Clintons. Yeah, I mean, I sort of uh, compare this. I, I agree with all of that, and I compare this a little bit to the first few episodes of Sex in the City, uh, where Samantha, the character in, in Sex in the City, tells Carrie when introducing Mister Big basically to the audience. Uh, he's like the next Donald Trump, except younger and better looking. And that when you watch that today, it it has a completely different meaning. But back then, it's useful, especially for me. Like I, I am, am much younger. I am like on the, the very young end of millennial. And it's useful to contextualize like what the 1990s image of Trump was within these certain social sets. Because it was sort of, I think, to some degree, an aspirational, it, it conveyed a sense of machismo. There was some amount of aspirational wealth clout that came with that. There wasn't a sense of, oh, this person is is so objectionable and there are all these political attachments there. So much as it was like, this guy is uber well-connected, top of his game. Uh, and, and a lot of men in a lot of different industries, I think, aspired to be like that. Uh, he had this, I guess, transcendent quality Despite being a real estate magnate where all the the Wall Street bros, the financial dudes were interested in emulating that and sort of saw him as aspirational, even though he wasn't quite as explicitly within their industry or somebody who had risen through the ranks of their specific vertical, he was still sort of seen as the almost like status reaching every man, the, the every man of the elite, in a sense. And I think you see that in Sex and the City, you see that in American Psycho. And it's funny because I wonder how many modern viewers see the Donald Trump references in American Psycho and take that sort of mental shortcut of being like, oh, yeah, the director's saying like, Donald Trump bad and Bateman bad and everybody's a psychopath. And it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, that's pretty anachronistic if you actually think about it for more than three seconds. But I wonder to what degree the film holds up better because of people's sort of mental laziness and ability to take those shortcuts. It's interesting, too, because Patrick Bateman and the especially the Trump election and presidency both kind of came – Patrick Bateman as an internet meme really, really took off at a similar time as the 
sort of Sigma grind set, uh, like work hard, uh, you know, elite top of your game type of like semi satirical, but not always mindset was, was beginning to launch. Uh, and then you have, uh, the, the Trump presidency and that, uh, the, the sort of very, very heavy grassroots digital movement that went on to support him and try and uh, swing the election in his direction with things like the Donald and uh, all the memes and things that were that were spurred on by that. They they kind of ascend in a similar way. And you can see how these ideas have always kind of been in conversation with one another. But in a way, the memification of Patrick Bateman, I wonder, does it miss something? Does it not make that connection? Like, and I think you could make a lot of arguments that some people are doing this for satirical purposes and they're trying to say they're using Patrick Bateman to use these ideas and, and further them to call attention to something. But a lot of people, I think use that image in a non-ironic sense and don't really understand the significance of what that image and character can and really represent. And it kind of muddles the meaning with that. Do we risk by sort of memifying him, turning him into just another kind of Gordon Gecko, Jordan Belfort from Wolf of Wall Street Hyper masculine hero that people misunderstand, kind of like a it, d- does it have Fight Club syndrome in that in that way? I mean, one thing that I think is that the memification of Bateman himself definitely does run that risk. But memification of specific components of American Psycho, I find to be absolutely delightful. Like the business card scene, which is so iconic, and also. At this point, becoming a little bit of a relic of the past because, like, do people still have business cards? Maybe that's just because I'm a journalist, so I'm like, look me up on Twitter. Um, but the best one that I've seen is the it's it's all about poking fun at corporate culture and the sort of evolving mores there. But it's like the Paul Allen business card, and then it says like he slash him on it, and sort of the absurdity of how that would like not in any way land. You know, the the, the gag, the the joke is that that would not in any way land in that type of corporate culture. But now that's like a thing that you see as much more pervasive and seen as, you know, that type of signaling about people's pronouns is seen as um, not only something that is accepted in those types of types of circles, but something that I think people kind of do to signal their virtue and, and to get ahead in, in a lot of those environments because that's seen as valuable in a way that it didn't used to be. Um I don't know. I mean, I think about like to 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 such a high degree, all of this holds up like we don't call them yuppies anymore. And they're not typically Wall Street bros. The sort of recession and financial crisis kind of ruined the creation of media around about Wall Street types. But there's also like perhaps private equity culture or venture capitalist culture is the closest corollary that we have now. The whole Silicon Valley earlier stage startup tech bro hustle culture doesn't map well onto this because it grapples with status and hierarchy in a different way. And at least in the earlier stages of creating businesses within Silicon Valley, there is so much more emphasis on actually putting in the time and doing the work before you can begin to reap the the status rewards. And so in a sense, it's not quite as cushy as you graduate from a top tier school, you get hired by one of these firms, and then you're you're 26 or you're 27 years old, like a lot of these people, and you're in it. You have your Valentino suit and you have your Jean-Paul Gaultier body bag or suit bag or whatever. Like, like, in the, it's it almost like seems more like what I've seen people from elite schools do when they go into consulting, but Silicon Valley, at least, you know the the parts of it that are really respected do continue to have this actual barrier to entry, which is you have to actually be good at what you do. You have to have um, technical skill in a lot of situations, especially if you want to be ground level at a lot of these startups. Uh, maybe later on, I think private equity culture might be the appropriate sort of modern day corollary, but I think to some degree, Bateman will be somewhat inoculated from being as memified because there's not as clear of a current equivalent. One of the things that interests me about about this is when you could put it in the context of other, um, you know, sort of, I guess, Wall Street satires or critiques is how much 
this film doesn't directly really have a lot to say about capitalism in contrast to those other uh, those other works. Um, in the book, actually, it, it, I don't think it says Gordon, but there is a an offhand throwaway reference to oh, what happened to to Gecko? Um, so it's implying that like Gordon Gecko is uh, a uh, uh, um a character in this, in this fictional world who has maybe suffered some kind of comeuppance for financial crimes. Um, but right. Those are the reasons in a sense, right. Have something to say about, and you know, we're all right. Libertarians here and generally pretty, pretty pro pro capitalism, but you know, they all have a critique that is to some extent about you know, the, the, the structures of capitalism itself. Um, and you know, how the, the, you know, the, the artist perceives it as, as, whatever, taking advantage of people or being based on, you know, so scams and trickery or whatever. Um, and that's almost entirely absent here, right? There's a critique of the kind of level of character and culture, right? These are shallow, sort of insipid, banal people who, um, you know, look down on and or have no compassion for the, you know, the homeless and the and the less fortunate um, and feel superior that they don't really in any recognizable way deserve to feel that way or uh, you know, have any kind of greater personal merit. Um, but like the sort of meat of like what Bateman actually does with his work is just not part of the story at all. Right. You, you know, there, it is not a story about in a sense, right. Like wall street finance itself being a kind of hostile, uh, 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 right. Some kind of destructive force. Um, you hear almost nothing about he's really interested in the Fisher account that Paul Allen has, but that's, you know, as far as you can tell, all he actually does at his desk is like read, uh, read sports illustrated and make, you know, homicidal, uh, uh, doodles, um, which is, is, uh, yeah, I don't know. Look, it's, it's not that I, I, I feel like, Oh, I really needed to read another, uh, another English majors critique of capitalism, but, um, um, but it is, it is interesting to me that the, in, in a way that's almost, almost, you know, maybe a little bit Bateman-like, um, the, the sort of contempt is at this very cultural level, right? Like, uh, you know, Patrick Bateman is, is this, you know, you know how you know he's bad is he, he liked Donald Trump and also, um, right. His only kind of cultural passion is for like really insipid kind of super mainstream, um, right. Like the most kind of mass market, mass culture. Um, he's really into like Genesis and Whitney Houston and Huey Lewis. And he even thinks in the book, right. God, that Huey Lewis is inferior, is superior to Elvis Costello, which God, what kind of, you know, what kind of Philistine idiot would think that, which, you know, of course, right. That is a crazy view. Uh, of course, Elvis Costello is better than Huey Lewis, but, um, but uh, you know, it, it, how much the sort of the satire and the contempt is, um, in a sense, really lacks any kind of coherent statement about why, um, you know, at a structural level, I think Wall Street firms are bad and exploitative because X, Y, Z, um, and is much more centered on. I find these these sort of people repellent at a at a kind of cultural level. I think to some degree, it means that like like one thing that was really striking to me as a New Yorker um, who has too many sort of vaguely yuppie-ish friends is like the degree to which so much of this goddamn like dinner reservation rat race is still absolutely totally a thing. Like I put this in a, one of our exchanges before this of like, I feel like I've been to Dorcia, so to speak. In the sense of like, to me, you know, an Indian meal in Jackson Heights is just as good as the fanciest thing that everybody's raving about in Manhattan. But for whatever reason, there's like a whole set of people. And I think it transcends industry um, to some degree. I see it reflected in friends who are high earners in a, a whole bunch of different fields where there's just this interest in doing this thing to be able to talk. It's, a, I guess, a means of connecting with other people. You know, did you try the squid at Dorcia? Oh, you, yeah, we tried the squid ravioli there, whatever. And it's relatable to some degree because I'm I'm such a food person, but there is just this component that's like, I almost wonder this like rich person, New York status game, will this ever feel out of date? You know, this happened, this is set in the 80s. I still feel like some people that I know play this game and talk in this manner in 2022. 
I mean, in 2060, will this continue to be the way that like muddied New York high society type stuff works? Not that I, I don't want to oversell the degree to which I'm a part of that, but I do know a few people who are, you know, very much like that. And, you know, I oftentimes will, will try out a restaurant with them, you know, every once in a while. And I'm just sort of constantly annoyed by how overrated a lot of these places are. I think perhaps because I'm not getting the social capital benefit from talking about it the way that they are. They go to work at a fancy law firm and they say, oh, I got a reservation at this place and we tried this dish there. Whereas I'm just like a freaking writer who tweets too much. And so if I say, you know, I got a reservation at this fancy place, I don't I don't think it means that much to the people that I'm trying to impress. And I think I, I kind of prefer my group because of that reason. A samosa that you get in Jackson Heights is just as valuable. <laughs> well, the, yeah, obviously, if they remade it, uh, Bateman would be Instagramming all his appetizers. <laughs> well, that was an interesting part of the the opening sequence, like the degree to which it's not blood, it's plating, you know, that we're seeing with with the the red liquid that's being used. And then I don't know if you guys caught this in the the credits, also uh, business card font for all of them. Yeah, which I thought was just a fascinating way of just continuing to like uh, underscore these points about this is this is fundamentally a critique of upper crust people not any of the deeper things beneath that although you know one of the things i've seen uh, ellis sort of admit in interviews is that there is a uh a a somewhat kind of confessional element to this um not in that ellis is admitting to a series of murders but that um right look i mean this, this again maybe this comes out more clearly in the book but like Ellis is clearly intimately familiar with all of these brands. And, uh, you know, some of the restaurants are made up and some of them are real. Um, and I think what he, you know, what he said in interviews is, look, you know, um, this is a satire and a critique, but it's it's a critique of something that he is not totally unfamiliar with. That, that in fact, he, he, he uh, you know, is actually quite well acquainted with, uh, you know, Etro and, and, uh, uh, and Versace and, uh, and and Manolo Blahnik and all these things, um, and and has you know in him you know recognizes in himself um, some of that sort of desire to kind uh, uh, of elevate himself through uh, you know kind of identification with uh, with brands and to be recognized as you know someone tasteful and. He threw his dad under the bus at first when the book first came out. Apparently, he was people were asking him what he's based on. He's like, "Oh, my dad, he's a real monster." And then it, only <laughs> until recent years was he like, "Actually, I was just kind of embarrassed." And so it's actually much more based on my life during a certain period of time when I was like going through and living a life very similar um, to Patrick Bateman, not in the killing sense, but in this sort of like consumerist consuming status anxiety driven sense i mean looked at one way these restaurant names and these brands these fashion brands and the names of different people who are working on different projects like looked at one way it's shorthand for constructing a personality or for for attempting to convey that you have a personality to people and i think there's a really dark side to that there's a laziness that springs from that and we see a lot of those themes touched on in american psycho but also looked at another way and i i hate to like be this like constant capitalist shill, but I am one, uh, you know, it's kind of cool and interesting and maybe valuable that people who perhaps cannot or won't develop a personality in other ways are able to transact money that they earned to feel like they have the trappings of a personality and to feel like they're able to, I don't know, I imagine this is a way that people rise in the ranks of status and class where, you know, perhaps they were born to a much poorer family, but they need to relate to certain people within a certain professional setting. And so one of the ways that you signal your belongingness is by saying, hey, I got a reservation here or that food that you're talking about. I know I know about that as well. And so to some degree, it's it's a means of people. It's it's a means for people to climb uh, into classes that they weren't born in and to use these really sort of easy shorthand ways to signal that they're part of something that they're perhaps not naturally part of. I think that's a really cool thing. You can sort of use it for good or for evil. Look, you know, I, I, I'll, uh, I, I'm, you know, sympathetic. Look, I like a nice, a nice Etro suit as much as the next guy. Um, probably more than the next guy. So, uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't meticulously obsess in the same way over every, um, uh, you know, uh, aspect of that. But I think, you know, it, it to some extent, right, it lands a satire because probably a lot of the audience, um, 
right, you know, gets to feel superior to Bateman, because, well, because they're not serial killers and because, uh, uh, and, and, you know, huge racists, but, um, you know, because it's not to the same extent. Um, but it lands to the extent that I think we look at this and, and probably, um, you know, I guess if we're from the kind of class that's reading Brady Stadella's novels, um, recognize a little bit of that. Like, oh, you know what? I, I, I do like, um, uh, uh, you know, finding a nice suit and, and saying, gosh, you know, I, 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 uh, uh, I like I like how this looks and and uh, I hope people notice that it's a uh, uh, it's something fancy. Um, as long as we, you know, you just have to not not mistake that for a personality. Yeah, as a person who worked <laughs> at a Joseph A. Bank for three years in college, I do recognize uh, a quality suit when I see one because I stared at so many that weren't for that long. Um, <laughs> not a sponsor of the show and won't be in the future. I have, I gotta say one of my I I uh, one of my favorite uh, blazers that I wear all the time is a tweed Joseph Bank blazer. The blazers I, is, are different. Is, they do something with the blazers. The suits perfectly will fall nice apart. garment. I'll, I'll, <laughs> yes. I'll buy it. I'm just saying. I still you know have what? one I, in the closet. I I, I own uh, garments from Joseph A. Bank that I I like a lot. I have no shame in that. I'm I, sure uh, you bought two and got come, 19 free. Come, come <laughs> well, yeah. Look, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt that you could get two. You get two for one. Um, seriously, no. Come for me, Bateman. I no shame in my Joseph A. Bank jacket. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's pop, the letter N, lock with an E like the philosopher, pop. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please rate and review us if you like the show. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is a project of libertarianism.org and is produced by me, Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.